Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, 1 Samuel chapter 20. We concluded 1 Samuel chapter 19 in our last meeting. And we're going to begin exploring chapter 20 that has so much more to it than meets the eye. We're going to dissect it rather carefully so as not to miss something of the important information it conveys to us. Now last week's lesson ended with this rather odd supernatural event that happened at a place called Nayot near Samuel's residence in Ramah located in the territory of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe. It was to there that David had fled from Saul and from his henchmen. And and he informed Samuel of what had transpired. And and he fully expected it wasn't going to take long for Saul to learn of his whereabouts. And sure enough, David's location was discovered. And Saul sent a group of what was probably his local bodyguards, to capture or kill David, but something amazing happened. They arrived to find a congregation of prophets led by the chief prophet Samuel prophesying. And the result was that the soldiers too began to prophesy. And they were so overwhelmed with God's word that they just couldn't carry out their plot against David. A second group of men, then a third, were sent. Same results. Finally, Saul decided that if you needed a job done, sometimes it's better to do it yourself. So he left the comforts and safety of his palace to personally arrest David. He too encountered the prophesying congregation of prophets and had an even more dramatic experience with the power of Jehovah that did those three companies of soldiers he had sent. Overcome with the inspiration of the oracle of God that was being spoken, Saul stripped off his royal robes, he laid them down before Samuel, the supreme earthly messenger of God's word, and he began to prophesy just as the three groups of his soldiers had. So not even the king, or better, the anti-king, could bring about his own evil plan because it wasn't within God's will that it should happen. Now we discussed how a similar event was going to occur some years later when David called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to him. And David stripped off his royal garments and he danced in an ecstatic state before the Ark of God. However, he also donned the simplest of priestly garments, the ephod, as he symbolically laid down his kingly authority. He demonstrated his true position before God as a joyful and willing servant with no allegorizing whatsoever that's even needed. 
Here in the contrast between David and Saul's circumstances and inner spiritual conditions is a breathtaking illustration of how it is that every person born on this planet, wicked or righteous, redeemed or lost, will eventually lay down the authority over our lives before God for judgment. Even King Saul, who was the early shadow of the Antichrist, was brought low. He laid down his authority at the feet of the God of Israel. So the only issue that each and every human will have in this regard is whether that garment of authority that naturally accompanies the free wills we're all born with are willingly given up as an act of our humility in exchange for the garment of a servant to the Most Holy One or whether that garment is going to be finally taken from us in all of our defiance as an act of our shame before God. Our personal decision on that cosmically and eternally important matter will dictate our present and future lives and determine whether we're going to live productively as useful vessels shaped and molded by the master potter or as distorted and unclean ones, tossed aside, useful only to the great adversary. I want to quote for you a moving excerpt from an essay written by the acclaimed Christian novelist and a very dear personal friend, T. Davis Bunn, that I think eloquently captures the essence of our willingly giving up that one thing that every man values above all else. Loyalty to and authority over ourselves. Here's what he says. Our churches are filled with hungry hearts. People dissatisfied. We blame the minister. We blame the church. We blame the infighting, the human dimension, the absence of this or that. We blame everything and everybody but ourselves. Desiring change is not enough. We cannot reach out and take hold of what God offers without first making that one intensely challenging step. Letting go. So long as we maintain our two-fisted hold upon whatever it is in our lives that remains out of sync with God's divine plan, we are shackled to the spot where we stand. Dissatisfied yearning, critical, wanting more, and yet terrified of doing what we must in order to be able to move forward. Letting go. Entering the season of divine change means that we must first move from where we are. And there's only one way of doing so. By understanding that God calls us not merely to freedom, but to freedom in Him. 
Our redemption is not a liberty, liberty that's to remain isolated and independent. God frees us from the prison of sin through the act of eternal sacrifice. This liberty has granted us eternal freedom and something more, something vital to fulfill God's purpose in us, to bring ourselves to the full harvest, we must accept God's concept of liberty, not ours, God's. And what did we say God's definition of liberty contained? The freedom to live within His purpose for our lives. King Saul defied God. He determined to live his life for his own purposes. He used his liberty as a redeemed Hebrew, even one that was originally chosen by God, not to rule as God's God's agent over God's people, but instead he chose to rule as an independent, selfish, power-hungry dictator subject only to his own whims, following his own heart, resulting in being permanently separated from the God of Israel. Such is the nature of the spirit of the Antichrist, a spirit that desires its own way, its own authority, and it rejects the Lord's. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 320. David fled from the prophet's dormitory in Ramah. He returned to Yehonatan and said, What have I done? Where have I gone wrong? What, What sin have I committed that makes your father want to take my life? And Jonathan replied, Oh, heaven forbid, you're not going to die. Look, my father does nothing important or unimportant without telling me first so why should my father hide this from me it just won't happen and in response David swore your father knows very well that you have made me your friend this is why he will say Jonathan must not know this or he will be unhappy as truly as Adonai lives as truly as you're alive there's only a step between me and death Jonathan said to David Anything you want me to do for you, I'll do. And David answered Jonathan, Look, tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh, and I ought to be dining with the king. Instead, let me go and hide myself in the countryside until evening on the third day. If your father misses me at all, say, Well, David begged me to let him hurry to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the annual sacrifice there for his whole family. If he says... Very good. Then your servant's going to be all right. But if he gets angry, you will know that he's planned something bad. Therefore, show kindness to your servant, for you are bound to your servant, you have bound your servant to yourself by a covenant before Adonai. But if I've done something wrong, then, then kill me yourself. Why turn me over to your father? And Jonathan said, Heaven forbid! If I were ever to learn that my father had definitely decided to do you harm, Wouldn't I tell you? And then David asked Jonathan, Okay, who will tell me 
in the event your father gives you a harsh answer. Jonathan said to David, come, let's go out to the countryside. They went out, both of them to the countryside, and Jonathan said to David, Adonai, the God of Israel, is witness, as after I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, then if things look good for David, I will send and let you know. But if my father intends to do you harm, may Adonai do as much and more to me if I don't let you know and send you away so that you can go in peace. And may Adonai be with you just as he used to be with my father. However, you are to show me Adonai's kindness, not only while I'm alive so that I do not die, but also after Adonai has eliminated every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth, you are to continue showing kindness to my family forever. Thus Jonathan made a covenant with the family of David, adding, May Adonai seek its fulfillment even through David's enemies. Jonathan had David sweared again because of the love he had for him. He loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is Rosh Hodesh, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. The third day hide yourself well in the same place as you did before, but stay by the departure stone. I will shoot three arrows to one side as if I were shooting at a target. Then I'll send my boy to recover them. If I tell the boy, they're here on this side of you, take them, then come. It means that everything's peaceful for you. As Adonai lives, there's nothing wrong. But if I tell the boy, the arrows are out there beyond you, then get going because Adonai is sending you away. As for the matter we discussed earlier, Adonai is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the countryside, and when Rosh Hadish came, the king sat down to eat his meal, and the king sat at his usual place by the wall. Jonathan stood up. Abner sat next to Shaul. But David's place was empty. However, Saul didn't say anything that day. Because he thought, well, something's happened to him. He's unclean. Yes, that's it. He's unclean. Well, the day after Rosh Hodesh, the second day, David's place was empty. And Shaul said to Yohanan, his son, why hasn't Yishai's, Jesse's son, come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, well, David begged me to let him go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother demanded that I come. So now, if you look on me favorably, please let me get away and see my brothers. That's why he hasn't come to the king's table. At that, Shaul flew into a rage at Jonathan. And he said, you crooked rebel. Don't you know that you've made this son of uh, that I know that you've made this son of Jesse your best friend? You don't care that you're shaming yourself and dishonoring your mother too? Because as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be secure. Now, send and bring him here to me. He deserves to die. Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul threw his spear at him, aiming to kill. Jonathan could no longer doubt that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan got up from the table in a fury, and he ate no food that second day of the month. 
because he was upset over David, because his father had put him to shame. The next morning, Jonathan went out into the country at the time he had arranged with David, taking with him the young boy. And he told the boy, now run and find the arrows I'm about to shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy reached the place where the arrow was that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan shouted at the boy, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Jonathan continued shouting after the boy, Quick, hurry, don't just stand there. And Jonathan's boy gathered the arrows and returned to his master. But the boy didn't understand anything about the matter. Only Jonathan David understood. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David got up from a place south of the stone. He fell face down on the ground, prostrated himself three times, and they kissed one another and wept each with the other until it just became too much for David. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Adonai that Adonai will be between me and you and my descendants and yours forever. David had been rescued from Saul's treachery, but it was only going to last for a moment. Even though at Nayot, where God's word and all of its power had pushed that pause button on Saul's murderous ambitions, as soon as the prophesying ended, so did his wickedness return. Man, what another lesson leaps off this page about how the word of God can affect a person only in so far as that person allows it. And further, just how deceived we can be about our own true condition as seen in Jehovah's eyes. How often I've witnessed a person hear the gospel, rush down the aisle for prayer as if drawn by an invisible string, fall down on their face knowing they've heard the truth, but only days later the old nature prevails. No lasting change has occurred. God's word was so compelling at that moment they couldn't resist it. But out of its presence it was like a man looking at himself in a mirror and walking away he forgets what he looks like. Yeshua captured what happened to Saul at Nioth and what happens to so many who hear God's word and respond in a very well-known parable. Let's read that parable together. It's very pertinent. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1266. We're going to read 20 verses, first 20. 
Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. It goes like this. Again Yeshua began to teach by the lake, but the crowd that had gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat on the lake and he sat there while the crowd remained on the shore at the water's edge and he taught them many things in parables. In the course of his teaching he said to to them, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some seed fell alongside the path and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky patches where there, there wasn't much soil. It sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun rose... The young plants were scorched, their roots weren't deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked it so that it yielded no grain. But other seed fell into rich soil. It produced grain. It sprouted, grew, yielded a crop 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And he concluded, whoever has ears to hear with, Let him hear. And then when Yeshua was alone, the people around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he answered them, To you the secret of the kingdom of God has been given, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may always be looking, but never seeing, always listening, never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then Yeshua said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How long will you be able to understand any parable? The sower sows the message. Those along the path where the message is sown are people who no sooner hear it than the adversary comes and he takes away the message sown in them. Likewise, those receiving seed on rocky patches are people who hear the message and joyfully accept it at once. But they have no root in themselves. So they hold out for a while, but as soon as some trouble or persecution arises on account of the message, they immediately fall away. Others are sown among thorns. They hear the message, but the worries of the world, the deceitful glamour of wealth... All the other kinds of desires, it pushes in, it chokes out the message so that it produces nothing. But those sown on rich soil, they hear the message, they accept it, they bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. The divine sower had sent his seed of the holy message to Saul who heard it and he couldn't resist its potent truth. But quickly, as the prophesying of God's word ended, so did the effect of it upon Saul. Did Saul consciously think of himself as a man who has heard God's message and believed it, but was actually still wicked by choice and chose to remain that way? Did he think that perhaps because he had himself prophesied. In other words, he knew. He spoke. He quoted God's word. And he reacted to it in obedience for a short while. That this was sufficient to indicate permanent harmony or at least restored fellowship 
with God. Saul was fully deceived as a result of his own insistent rebellion. It was an irrational rebellion that was now aimed squarely at David. It was a rebellion against God that was so incomprehensible to any rational person that that Jonathan, he couldn't trust his own eyes and, and ears. He just couldn't accept that his father's rash words were were real. David couldn't understand what it was, why it was that Saul hated him. It made no sense. So in verse 1, after David returns from Gibeah to from, from Ramah, and he seeks out his friend Jonathan, he pleads with him, what have I done? And of course the naive... Jonathan responds, oh, heaven forbid, you're not going to die. The Hebrew word that Jonathan replied with was halilah. Halilah. It literally means far be it from me. Not heaven forbid. It is an idiomatic Hebrew expression indicating total rejection of the thought. This same expression is often translated in our Bibles as God forbid. But in reality, the person of God or the sanctity of heaven is never called upon or is it mentioned when this Hebrew word is used. So when we encounter heaven forbid or God forbid in the scriptures, generally, no reference to God or His spiritual domain is actually there. It's just that Chalilah is the strongest possible expression of shock and surprise and denial of whatever it was that was proposed. David, however, being on the receiving end of Saul's homicidal rages, isn't so willing this time to accept Jonathan's reassuring response. He tells Jonathan that his father isn't telling him the truth. He's hiding from him his real intentions. Jonathan is still skeptical, but his attachment and loyalty to David compels him to agree to do whatever is necessary for David's protection. So David suggests a plan to try and ferret out what Saul's mindset is with a kind of certainty that Jonathan and David no longer have to doubt. Well, this plan that they hatch revolves around a festive meal that apparently happens at each Rosh Chodesh, that is, each new moon. Thus, from a biblical perspective, this is a once-per-month affair since the Hebrews employed the lunar calendar to determine months. By the way, let me pause here for a uh, a moment to explain that it is often said in Christian circles that the Hebrews used a lunar calendar. That is not correct. They used a solar lunar calendar. That is, they used moon cycles, the moon cycles, for determining months, but they used the solar cycle for determining Years and seasons. 
If they didn't do this, then the seven biblical feasts would quickly become problematic and disconnected from their purpose. See, those feasts are all based on agricultural seasons. But at the same time, the Bible also calls for specific days of the month. Specific months and a specific day of that month for their observance. We covered this quite some time ago, but I want to take some time to refresh your memory. Since understanding time and seasons, oh, that's so very important in the Bible. A lunar cycle is slightly over 29 and a half days. The Hebrew system is that one lunar cycle is equal to one month. Okay? Since you can't have months that employ half a day, right, the Hebrew calendar generally calls out six months that are 29 days, six other months that are 30 days. So it averages out to 29 and a half. But in reality, one of those named months, Cheshvan, can either be 29 or 30 days, depending on when it's time to add a day to the Hebrew calendar to keep it properly aligned with the moon cycles. Further, because a solar year is 365 and a quarter days, then if you subtract 12 of these lunar cycles of 29 and a half days each, which equals 354 days, guess what? You get 11 days left over. 365 minus 354 is 11. In other words, 12 lunar cycles, 12 Hebrew months, doesn't add up to one solar year. You with me so far? Now, I'm not going to explain this system in depth. All right? But the earliest biblical Hebrews devised a system whereby every few years they would adjust their calendars by adding days or even a full month. That's right. Every few years the Hebrew calendar has 13 months, not 12. Since Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are all agricultural-based springtime feasts, and Shavuot is a summertime agricultural feast, and Yom Kippur, Yom Teruah, and Sukkot are all fall season feasts. If the Hebrews didn't constantly adjust their calendars for the differences between lunar and solar cycles, very quickly the season wouldn't match the agricultural purpose for each set of feasts anymore. You'd have first fruits observances occurring in the dead of winter when nothing was growing, for instance. There'd be no first fruits to celebrate. But let me also address something that lately, for some reason, has created a new problem for some Christians that have begun to study their Jewish roots. Weeks, seven-day cycles, are completely independent of months and years, and they were never changed. 
never were days or added or subtracted to adjust weeks. Don't let that confuse you. This is something you ought to fully understand because it's exactly how our modern calendars work. Right? We don't have weeks that vary in length. And even when we arrive at leap year, we don't add a day to a week so that we have one week that's eight days long, do we? We still have nothing but seven-day weeks. Weeks don't line up with months. They never have. But what weeks do is they overlap months. Now, I say this because there's some that have created this new theory that's become kind of popular. That in Bible times, at the beginning of each new month, was they declared it to be day one of a new week, or, or some theorize that they named it the Sabbath, so that it was the last day of the previous week, and so the second day of the month always became day one of week one of that month. Thus, Shabbat wasn't actually in practice every seven days. It could vary. It would be as though, on our modern calendars, that the first of each month totally reset the beginning of weeks. Thus, the first day of every month, for instance, might always be Sunday, the first day of the week, or the alternate theory says Saturday, Sabbath. Thus a week might end abruptly at Wednesday if it happened to fall on the last day of the month and the next day, the first day of the new month, starts with either Saturday or Sunday depending on which theory you hold to. Okay, Thursday and Friday in my scenario just disappears. In other words... These new theories suppose that weeks were altered so that they lined up with months. Now I have to tell you, this is really far-fetched. There is no biblical or known historical backing. It really doesn't properly characterize the, the, the biblical or modern Hebrew calendar at all. Calendar issues have just plagued the church for years, but it really ain't that tough. All right, Once you understand the solar lunar aspects of it. And it's been that way going back forever. Anyway, verse 5 explains that it was the last day of the month when David and Jonathan was hatching this plan to get King Saul to expose his true intentions towards David. Thus, the next day from when they were hatching this plan was the new moon, Rosh Hodesh, the first day of the new month. There was going to be a festive meal at which the members of the top echelon of the king's court were expected to dine with the king. Well, the plan was that David wouldn't go to the dinner, as was usual, and Jonathan then was to gauge his father's reaction to David's absence, and, and then perhaps engage, engage him in conversation and find out his mindset, especially after a few cups of festive wine had been drunk. So here we get a sad, sad view 
of how Israel, or at least some in Israel, had contorted, added to, subtracted from the biblical instructions for holy days. The new moon feast of Saul's must have been something invented by Saul or others who surrounded him because it doesn't follow the biblical pattern. And certainly the biblical instructions of Numbers 10 and Numbers 28 do not instruct a multi-day feast as described here. Here King Saul is even the officiator over this holy day. But according to the law, all holy days are to be officiated over by who? The priesthood. Whatever was being practiced could be classified as tradition. And of course, as the centuries roll on, we find Hebrews and eventually Christians sort of making it up as we go. Did the law prescribe that there was to be a Rosh Chodesh observance and sacrifice each month? Yes. Were the nuts and the bolts of the holy observance spelled out in the Torah? Yes. Was it to last more than one day? No. Was a king, was some other civil authority to preside over all of its holy rituals? No. So as usual, we find King Saul involved with some kind of ceremony or event that has a a pious or very self-righteous tone to it, even perhaps kind of based on a scriptural commandment, but it has been so perverted with changes and and men's thoughts and pagan elements that one, one can't even really call it a holy celebration to Yehovah any longer, even though that's certainly what they felt they were doing. See, this ought to be a major warning light for us all. Thankfully, many are stopping today to honestly re-examine our our celebrations to see if they are truly God-authorized to begin with. And if they are, are we keeping them properly? Or have we mixed our preferences and and some heathen elements with what God ordained and naively expect God to accept as good whatever it is that we present to Him because we like it? We've grown used to it. The plan continues that David would go into hiding. He'd wait for word from Jonathan on the outcome. But another part of the plan also involved a blatant lie. David asked his dear friend to tell his father that David was instructed by his eldest brother to come home to Bethlehem for an annual sacrificial feast and that Jonathan had okayed it. The Hebrew word for this particular sacrificial feast is zevah. It's of the Shlemim class of sacrifices, which means it's voluntary. A Hebrew can have one of these anytime he feels like it, anytime he has a personal reason to honor the Lord. Further, the worshippers can eat the bulk of the meat. So it's indeed designed for festive meal occasions. Now apparently, David's family probably did have some kind of annual family celebration. But the thing is, no sacrifice to the Lord is to occur except under the auspices of a 
a, a Levite priest. And a sacrifice is only supposed to occur upon the brazen altar at the central sanctuary. First the wilderness tabernacle, later on the, the temple. Now what we can know is that the main sanctuary site had been Shiloh, Shiloh for many years. But now it was defunct. We know that in Saul's time, several competing sanctuary sites were actually set up at Gilgal, Bethlehem, Nob, just, just to mention a few of them. Even more, there were competing priesthoods now. There were even at least two competing high priests that we're aware of. Biblically, the, uh, the lines of uh, Ithamar and the lines of Zadok. Zadok was the proper biblically authorized line of high priests. Ithamar was not. Samuel's mentor, if you'll recall, Eli, was of the line of Ithamar, the unauthorized line. Now, I only tell you this to briefly demonstrate just how fractured and decimated was the priesthood at this time. How barely recognizable were true biblical Hebrew practices and how infiltrated with man-made traditions and customs from other religions that the Israelite worship system had become. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Now it's important to notice how whatever it was that was occurring and deemed as holy observance was pretty much taken for granted by the public as normal and good. There seemed to be no questioning, no concern over it. Following God's religious ordinances with any degree of faithfulness seems to have been long ago discarded by the time of King Saul's era. And we find that even God's favored and anointed king, David, was really no different. I mean, I, I really hope alarm bells are going off with your, within your soul as we read of this apostasy that is eerily similar to what surrounds us all today. Okay, in verse 8, David invokes the covenant of friendship and loyalty that he and Jonathan had entered into and says that in light of that covenant, Jonathan ought to show him kindness. Well, the, actually, the Hebrew is chesed. And translating that into kindness kind of misses the impact. Okay? Fidelity. Faithfulness. That's more the sense of the word as used in this context. Kindness for us today means being nice. Be nice to somebody. Show them kindness. But fidelity, faithfulness, means following through with something good that is owed and promised. It is acting in a righteous manner. To not follow through with the chesed, that the covenant between them demanded would be a breach of the covenant, a serious act of disloyalty that essentially dissolved the covenant. According to covenant legal terms, 
a divine penalty for the covenant breaker was usually in order because Yehovah was the guarantor of any covenant or oath that bore his name, as this one did. Jonathan swears to tell David that if he discovers anything that would be a threat to him, he'll inform him of it. David's though not leaving anything to chance. And he asked Jonathan if it's going to be him personally that will come and inform him of the outcome. That's the sense of verse 10 where it says, Who will tell me in the event your father gives you a harsh answer? See, this is a pretty important question. Because if Jonathan plans on asking somebody else to deliver that message to David, he needs time to be sure that that's a reliable person. Involving anybody else has a pretty serious element of risk to this already risky operation. Now comes a pivotal moment. In verse 13, Jonathan painfully acknowledges that God is not with his father. Man, that's tough. But he is with David. Verse 14 thus leads us up to the creation of yet another and different covenant between these two friends. In what must have been a very emotional scene, Jonathan reveals something that he's instinctively been suspecting and harboring in his heart. He reveals that he sees David as the future king of Israel. He doesn't say this directly, but it becomes obvious in his request of David to make this new covenant with him. And the request is that David is to show not only Jonathan, but all of Jonathan's descendants chesed. Once the Lord has eliminated all of David's enemies. This covenant is to remain intact, whether Jonathan is alive or dead. Even more, David is to vow he would do nothing to cause Jonathan's death. Now that might seem a bit cryptic on the surface, kind of a, a strange request, considering this close relationship between David and Jonathan. But the meaning of it is quite transparent. You see, Jonathan realized that David is going to be the king of Israel. And since Adonai is behind it, nothing can stop it. This is a very bitter pill for Jonathan to swallow with such grace as he seems to be swallowing it. After all, his own father is the current king. By custom, Jonathan would automatically be the king to succeed his father. By Jonathan ceding the throne to David, recognizing God's will in this situation and being obedient to it, Saul's dynasty will end before it ever really even gets started. This matter of David promising not to harm Jonathan reflects a rather usual practice whereby members of the previous royal dynasty get killed off by the new one. That way there wasn't going to be any ongoing confrontation for the throne. 
by a family member of the former dynasty or his band of loyal supporters. So Jonathan, who was probably a married man, though it's not discussed, was concerned for the safety of his family once David assumed the throne. As it turns out, he had no reason to doubt or be concerned about David's faithfulness to the covenant. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll finish up with this. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Which is page 342 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're just going to read seven quick verses. David inquired, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom, for Jonathan's sake, I can show kindness? I can show chesed. In Shaul's household there had been a servant named uh, Siva, and they summoned him to David. And the king asked him, Are you Siva? And he answered, At your service. And the king said, Is there anyone still alive? from the family of Saul, to whom I can show God's grace. And Siva said to the king, Well, there is still Jonathan's son with the lame legs. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Siva answered, He's there in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodvar. And King David sent and took him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodvar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I am determined to be kind to you, to show you chesed for the sake of Jonathan, your father. I will restore to you all the land Saul, your grandfather, and you will always eat uh, of Saul, your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. He prostrated himself and said, "What is your servant that makes you pay such attention to a dead dog like me?" And the king called to Ziba and said to him, "I've given everything Saul and his family own to your master's grandson." You see, David wasn't a perfect man. But he remembered his promises. His dear friend Jonathan, who forsook loyalty to his own father and to his own right, his own authority to inherit the throne of Israel in favor of God's anointed king David, well, Jonathan was now dead. He'd been killed in battle. David would now perform the Chesed, the act of faithfulness, the act of fidelity to Jonathan's family that he had sworn to do so many years earlier. We're going to continue this story of the rise of David to the throne of Israel next week.